This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next-generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rubin. And today I'm joined by Congressman Elliot Engel, Congressman for New York's 16th Congressional District and Chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Congressman, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Nathan. I'm really happy to be here. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, we are really excited to have you. Um, and I was hoping we could just kind of start right off. Some of our listeners may not be so familiar with what it means to be a chair of a committee in the House of Representatives. So can you speak a little bit about your role as chairman? Yes, well, every committee in the House of Representatives has what's called a chair and a ranking member. Uh, Basically, each party selects its leader for each committee, and then the committee that gets the majority, their leader becomes the chair of that committee, and the minority party's uh, leader uh, becomes the ranking member. I was ranking member of the Foreign Affairs Committee for six years when the Republicans had the majority, and Democrats like me were in the minority, and now that the Democrats are in the majority, uh, I'm, I'm the chair of the, of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Now, um, being the chairman uh, affords you the, the ability to decide what legislation gets marked up, what legislation goes to the floor, what legislation is voted on, what direction uh, the Congress uh, should take, uh, notes to the, to the President putting forth legislation, challenging the President. We're going along with the president. We, we've been doing much more challenging these days. Um, so that's really what it is. You're able to push legislation. You, you're able to uh, allow the committee to um, go in the direction that the majority would like it to go. And I can tell you, uh, for us, it's certainly not the direction that Donald Trump wants us to go. And being the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, your purview is foreign policy. That's really your core area of focus. So can you talk a little bit about your work? What has been your main area of focus this year? Well, this year it's really been trying to prevent uh, Donald Trump and his administration from usurping what I call the prerogatives of the Congress. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Our Constitution, Article 1, talks about the legislature, the legislative branch before it even talks about the executive or the president. Yep. And uh, um, President Trump and his administration have to constantly be reminded that we are a co-equal branch of government. They would love to run this uh, country by fiat or by dictatorship, but that's not the way we go. Um, and I, as long as I'm chairman, when it comes to important things such as international affairs, such as war and peace, such as you name it, uh, I demand that the uh, input of the Foreign Affairs Committee and the legislative branch is right in there. It's not going to be where um, president snaps his fingers and Congress just pliantly goes along. Uh, we have lots and lots of difficulties. We have the AUMF, uh, which uh, every administration thinks they could use to do whatever they want. And for our listeners, the AUMF is the authorized use of military force. It's, it's effectively the manner which gives the president the authority to use military force. Is that correct? Yes. And what the uh, administrations have done from from George Bush, including Obama, is they have looked at the two of the uh, AUMFs, 
as virtually a blank check to mm. give them the ability to do whatever they want. I disagree with that tremendously because, again, we are a co-equal branch of government. You know, we, we haven't had a declared war, really, since uh, before we were all born. Uh, December 7th, 1941, when President Roosevelt came to Congress. Right, even the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, none of those were formally declared by Congress. Right, and that's dangerous because it's not where we have one branch of government. We're co-equal. You know, some of the other democracies in the Western world, the parliamentary democracies, if you get a majority in the parliament or the Congress, you then, you then govern. Uh, that's not how our Constitution works, and so therefore, uh, I, I really demand that the, the Congress uh, play a major role uh, as a co-equal branch of government. And that's what I've been saying all through this year since I've been chair. Um, and um, the president, of course, doesn't want to listen because he would much rather decide what's best for the country with nobody's input, even input of his um, people that he has to advise him, his secretaries and whatever. He's known to uh, disregard what they say, or he's known to, to say one thing and then do another thing, as, you, as we saw recently with, the, with Iran. Uh, everybody uh, believed that he was going to do a strike on Iran. And then, um, if you were to believe him, uh, he, he asked the question about how many people would be killed. And when they told him several hundred, he pulled back. I, I don't know how much of that I believe, quite frankly, because uh, that's the, the first thing that's asked of you. Not the last thing, and so right. it just doesn't doesn't seem right. But and, uh, and we're now in a position, especially when it comes to Iran, um, we have advisors like uh, John Bolton, Secretary of State Mike, Mike Pompeo. We don't seem to have a Secretary of Defense at the moment. Um, the last one resigned because the president, out of the blue, said that the United States is going to pull out of Syria. Mm which is a disaster from any way you look at it, because it would automatically, uh, lots and lots of people would, would be massacred, including uh, the Kurds who were our faithful allies in, in the fight against, against the, the problems in the Middle East. Yep. And so um, the president just has this way of um, what I call flying by the seat of his pants. Yep. You, know, you, you never know what he's going to say. You never know how he's going to change his mind. There's no consistency. There's nothing that's smooth. Everything is rocky. And then he thinks he can just do it his own way. And um, when uh, Secretary Mattis uh, resigned, he's defense secretary, over the president uh, waking up one morning, talking to the uh, president of Turkey, and then deciding that uh, we were going to pull out of Syria, he resigned in protest. Yep. And that's the only time in American history that something like that has happened where cabinet members resigned in protest. So there's no consistency. You you don't really know, even if you meet with the president and you hear him talk and you walk out of the room and you say, okay, he's going in that direction, it's no guarantee. You find out the next day or in a few hours uh, the direction. Mostly on Twitter. You wake up to a tweet right. and you see a change of direction. That's so, true. So let's talk a little bit more about Iran because tensions are escalating. Um, like you said, uh, we thought we were going to strike. We pulled back from a strike. Iran shot down a drone. Uh, they allegedly uh, attacked a, a tanker. Um, what is your take on where we are um, and where we're going? Is there any way that we can de-escalate the situation? Well, I think that's the, the number one thing that we have to do is de-escalate the situation. Look, 
the Iranian regime, they're not sweethearts, and uh, we should be under no uh, illusion about uh, them wanting peace or, or, or playing a positive role. We have to be the smart ones. We have to play the positive role. We have to work in conjunction with our allies, our closest allies, to try to tone down the rhetoric and make the focus uh, on, on the Iranian regime that's causing all this difficulty. Uh, from what the President's been doing, uh, we put the focus on us, and so we seem to be the isolated uh, uh, country, and that that should not happen. So, uh, but we don't want to go to war. I mean, it's it's ridiculous to go to war. You know, you push me, and I'll push you. Um, so I think that the president needs to work with our allies, the UK, uh, Germany, France, the ones that were involved with the JCPOA in Iran, and we have to make it so that uh, it's clear to Iran that they cannot continue to destabilize the region and do all kinds of other things uh, that can cause uh, a war. And we need to be smart about it. And we're not smart about it if we shoot from the hip yep. and every other day there's another direction. And that's what you have here. You have no uh, consistency whatsoever. So my be best piece of advice would be that we need to sit down with our closest allies and let the Iranians know we have a united front and uh, uh, put all kinds of pressure on them uh, to back off and to, to try to cool it. But uh, nobody wants a war. We shouldn't have a war, and we should do everything possible to avoid a war. So you mentioned the JCPOA, and that's known as the Iran deal. Um, were you an original supporter of that? No, I, I was not a supporter of it for, for a number of reasons. I, I, in fact, had a very good conversation with President Obama in the Oval Office just him and me, he called me in, no staff, just the two of us, for uh, 45 minutes, so we, we discussed it. Um, in I, retrospect, doesn't it seem pretty good to where we are now? Oh, yeah. What, what, what has to happen, even though I didn't like the deal, and I, I didn't like it for two reasons. Number one, uh, we were originally told that the deal would prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Uh, that's not what it was. It postponed the time for Iran to get a nuclear weapon, but it, it didn't prevent Iran from having a nuclear weapon. That bothered me. And secondly, uh, Iran is the uh, greatest and number one uh, state sponsor of terrorism in the world. And I thought that there should have been uh, some restrictions on Iran uh, supporting terrorists like uh, uh, Hezbollah, uh, I thought that that wasn't dealt with in the package, and it should have been dealt with in the package. But it passed. It became the law. And therefore, I don't believe that every time you change administrations that all the policies get changed, because who would negotiate with you? Who would work with you if, if, if one election away it changes? So I thought that since the Iran deal with JCPOA was working, was uh, pushing back the time, for Iran to have a nuclear weapon, that we should have stuck with it. Hmm. And at the same time, put pressure on Iran to make it uh, hard for them to have any kind of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, otherwise, uh, why would anyone negotiate with us right. if you're only one election away from changing and shifting policy? Hmm. So I thought that the deal could have been improved. I was disappointed that it wasn't. But I think this that deal is better than no deal. Yep. And the... Um, the, the ambassadors of the three countries I mentioned, France, Germany, and the UK, uh, all spoke with me and said that um, they, they thought it was, it was very important that the, uh, that the United States 
work with them, and that way it would be clear to everybody that Iran was isolated, that mm. Iran was the troublemaker, that if we didn't, if we pulled out of the deal, then the, the onus would be on us. We would look like the, the, the ones who were standing alone, and it would, it would not be the right p policy for us. And I think they were right about that. So you mentioned Syria, you mentioned Hezbollah and Lebanon. I want to stay in the region here. The White House uh, just recently released their economic portion of their plan for peace between the Israelis and Palestinian. I believe they called for uh, something like $50 billion in investment um, for the West Bank and Gaza. I'm curious, do you think that sort of prosperity for peace is, is kind of how they're coining it? Do you think something like that uh, could be successful? Well, I would hope that something with that uh, like, like that would be successful because there's been war for so long. It's happened since the founding of Israel uh, in 1948. Uh, the Arab states would not accept Israel. They made a mistake, in my opinion. They should have accepted it. The land could have been divided. There could have been two states. Uh, I've always been for a two-state solution. I still am. And I frankly think that uh, a lot of the Arab countries have no one to blame but themselves for rejecting Israel right off the bat back in 1948 and continuing it. Um, so I think what the president is, is trying to do, and again, um, they didn't consult with me in terms of in terms of the substance of the package, I, I knew the direction in which they were going, and um, uh, it, it's to look for um, economic ways to try to find a new path. Um, I think that's a good deal, uh, but I also do think that the political problems have to be dealt with as well. I, I think that you can't have one without the other. My preference would be a, a two-state uh, two solution with an Israeli-Jewish state side by side, a Palestinian uh, Arab state uh, with uh, all kinds of uh, safeguards uh, for Israel's security needs, legitimate security needs. And I think that perhaps if we do that and we couple it with this plan, uh, we can we can jumpstart it. Because by now, you know, I was at the lawn, on the lawn, uh, when uh, President Clinton uh, got uh, Yasser Arafat and uh, the Israeli Prime Minister uh, uh, together. Uh, and we all thought that peace was around the corner, and yet that is still the one you know, elusive uh, issue uh, around the world, doesn't seem to be making any progress. If this works, if this helps jumpstart it, then, then fine. But if it's, if, if it's this in place of a two-state solution, I'm, I'm, my fear is that it won't go very far. Um, we have to have a separation, I think, for many, many reasons. And we have to have smart leadership. I mean, we just have to have smart leadership. Yeah. The, the Arab uh, rejection of, of Israel is not right, not fair, and you're starting to see a crack in the Sunni Arabs, uh, with the Sunni Arabs. Uh, more and more of them are behind the scenes, are working with Israel, are fighting terrorism with Israel, are doing lots of things. So I, I hope that that's uh, one very uh, difficult subject that uh, we can we can try to bring an end to the to the well one of those trouble. one of those arab countries is saudi arabia that's getting closer and closer to israel but also uh, very close with the united states um, the trump administration wanted to sell arms to saudi arabia um, but i believe you were pretty instrumental in blocking that sale can you talk a little bit about that yes it, it goes uh, back to what i said when we first started to talk about the, the house and the congress being a co-equal branch of government Co-equal means that the, whoever the president is and whosever administration he, he has, uh, that he cannot willy-nilly make a decision. 
Now, Congress can hold up weapon sales, and we were holding up weapon sales to Saudi Arabia for a number of reasons. A lot of us are unhappy with the Khashoggi murder. We, sure. we know there's some complicity there. There are other things that we don't like. What the president did is he issued an emergency decree which supersedes what the, what the Congress has done. But by claiming that it's an emergency and he has to sell them the arms now, that he overrides what the Congress has done. Now, I'm outraged by it. Uh, it it's almost go, it goes beyond even the initial uh, d discussion of whether or not to sell arms, uh, arms to Saudi Arabia. It, again, it's, it stomps on the Constitution. We again are a co-equal branch of government, and if it was a real emergency, that's one thing. But this was a a phony, made-up emergency, so the president could do what he wants and and sell the the Saudis uh, the, the weapons uh, anyway. Yep. And uh, that doesn't stand well with me or with my colleagues, and uh, we are, we are making a a big fuss about it. And um, you know, again, even if there's some merit to it. It should not be done with the pre president with one fell swoop disregards the Congress. The president of the United States is not the king, he's not the dictator, he's the president of the United States. And President Trump, unfortunately in my opinion, feels that what he says goes and what the Congress says doesn't matter. It's not the way our system works. And so we're going to keep on the Foreign Affairs Committee especially, uh, you know, re renew our, our demand that we be treated as a co-equal branch of government, and we're going to keep doing it till the behavior changes. So for anyone listening, I think it's pretty clear that uh, the congressman is no fan of Donald Trump, um, and you're a big believer in being a co-equal branch of government, and you are investigating the Trump administration, um, not only his foreign policy, but all the other connections, perhaps uh, self-dealing and uh, corruption and all those elements. Can you speak a bit um, what you're allowed to say about the investigation into the Trump administration? Yes, uh, Congress again being a co-equal sure. branch is uh, just the way you know checks and balances. We all learned that when we were in school. Uh, we have to one of the ways we check the executive branch is by investigating what's going on, and we're doing that. I, I don't want to do it to uh, make a political statement because then I think it just gets gets mixed up in terms of, uh, of politics. Um, I want to do it because that's what we Congress is supposed to do. So when we hear, for instance, at the State Department that um, top uh, people who have been there for years and years are resigning and moving on because morale is so bad, I want to investigate why. When I hear that, uh, and some people come and they whisper in our ear and tell us that uh, people are being, uh, are being fired in the State Department because of their ethnic background or the color of their skin or whatever, then, then it's incumbent upon me and my committee to investigate these things. So it isn't just where we you know, make things up or we throw things and see what sticks. We get the, these reports and some of them sound very credible and we want to find out. It doesn't mean that we'll always say, yes, the president is wrong. But again, as a co-equal branch of government, we have the right to do that. So there are a number of uh, committees, there are about five or six of us, that um, are doing investigations. Everyone has different styles. I don't necessarily think it's important to drop a bomb, uh, but I do think it's important to, to investigate and to, and to uh, move forward and, and, and find out things. There was a, a wonderful story uh, from my vantage point 
that I read in uh, Politico uh, this week, which talked about how the Foreign Affairs Committee of all the committees is being low-key and plodding along and getting results. And, you know, I'm not looking to throw a bomb. I'm looking to get to the bottom of things. And that's what we, we try to do. I read that article. I encourage everyone else to take a look at that as well. It talks about how um, the Foreign Affairs Committee is one of the few that are acting in a bipartisan fashion investigating uh, the Trump administration, and I applaud you for that. Like you said, there are um, about five or six committees investigating the Trump administration. We do have the 400-page Mueller report as well, providing um, an extensive amount of documentation of President Trump's, um, I guess, misdeeds and in some cases alleged crimes. Um, are you a fan of impeaching the president? Would you be in support of an impeachment inquiry? Well, I think that we are probably moving in that direction. Um, as you know, uh, the speaker whom I support, Nancy Pelosi, has, uh, has urged us to slow down a little bit, and I'm willing to, to, again, work in tandem with her. She's a speaker. She's doing a good job. I support her. Um, but um, I, I think as more and more things are uncovered, you know, you scratch your head and you say, how did that happen? Do you think that there is enough material evidence out there to warrant an impeachment inquiry? Well, I think that's the question. And of course, it's not the impeachment that counts, it's the conviction. And the conviction, as you know, happens in the Senate by a two-thirds majority. And uh, as long as the Republicans control the Senate, which they do now, uh, I can't see any scenario other than some news that we haven't heard yet uh, that would uh, push the Republican uh, senators to convict the president. So we have to look at this in the context of uh, you can impeach someone if it's like Bill Clinton, but if they're not convicted, you know what have you what have you done uh, except uh, grind the country to a halt? But I think well, Al Gore didn't win in two thousand. Right, right. No, I, I I think that impeachment is something we should definitely look at, and uh, it's something that I think we're moving towards. I think there is a a real energy in the base of the Democratic Party that says. If this president is not worthy of impeachment, who is? What what crimes would be? What precedent are we setting for the future um, to say that you can, you know, potentially commit obstruction of justice? You can potentially uh, self-enrich through the emoluments of foreign leaders staying at your hotels. I feel like that evidence is kind of out there. Right. Well, I agree. And um, you know, um, one of my uh, colleagues, Al Green of uh, of Texas. Uh, put forward uh, months ago. Months ago, before papers. the midterm elections, right. I believe. And they tried to uh, to stop him, and we had the vote. I voted with him to continue the impeachment uh, investigation. So I have always favored it, but I don't want the Democrats to look like we are reaching uh, here and reaching right and left and up and down. I want, it, I want to see it more cohesive. So right now we have a speaker. She's our leader. I want to give her the, the benefit of the doubt. Um, but I, I frankly don't see any way that this doesn't lead to uh, uh, impeachment. Conviction, again, is quite another, another sure. situation. Hey, everyone. I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer-run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com 
slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government. And you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. So I want to turn uh, very quickly to some social issues. Uh, You now have two opponents who have declared their intention to run against you in 2020, and their platform is very much uh, progressive social, talking about uh, Medicare for all, um, investing in education, Um, but you are also pretty progressive on social issues. Can you talk a little bit about your background over your tenure? Uh, how you've supported those those issues? Sure, you know it's it's always something. Uh, I, I, I ask uh, any incumbent would ask someone to look at their record, uh, and I'm proud of my record. Um, I'm, I've been about as progressive as you can, you can get on social issues from from day from day one. You know, we, we were just last night at uh, a, a Westchester uh, pro-choice. A dinner, and uh, I thought 30 years in Congress, and I'm 100% pro-choice. I'm 100% voting on LGBT things, and you can go down the line. Um, I'm I'm 100%. Where do you um, stand on health care? I oh uh, I, I am I am for Medicare for all. You're pro Medicare for all. I've been a co-sponsor of that bill for, I guess it must be 10 or 12 or 14 years now. It was John Conyers. Old Bill, I was one of the co-sponsors, and you supported uh, and, the Green New Deal, I I'm, believe. I'm on the Green New Deal. I'm I'm a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. Um, I grew up in a city housing project in the Bronx. Uh, my dad was a, a union welder, and uh, um, social justice was very important in my family, and also um, the you know the rights of people, caring about people, working people. My dad was a was a was a welder. Um, so I, I grew up with that. Um, teaching, I, I understand some people who are teaching who might want to run. I was a teacher for the first uh, eight years of, of my life. The first job I ever had was as a teacher in the New York City public school system. Then I went and got my uh, master's in guidance and counseling, and I was a guidance counselor in the New York City public system. Then I ran for um, the New York State Assembly, and when I was 30 years old, I was elected to the New York State Assembly. So I've been, you know, progressive. We used to call it liberal in those days. Um, as much as anyone possibly can uh, in terms of social issues and other things as well. Um, it's a free country. Uh, everybody has the right to run. Yep. Um, because I've been elected and re-elected many times doesn't mean I have the absolute right to keep being re-elected. I've got to keep uh, showing that I represent the district, that I work hard, that I've been good for the district, that I've brought home things to the district. And I think I've done that, and I think that's why I've been elected and re-elected 15 times. Uh, and um, I, I, I welcome, you know, you'd always rather not have a primary, I'm <laughs> say. But I, but, I, but I welcome it. I mean, everybody's got the right to run. And I have this phrase that I've used for many years, 
that since it's a two-year term, it's a two-year contract. And when my two-year contract is over, I go to the voters and say, please renew my contract. Mm. And that's what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm, the voters have responded positively to me before. I've had many different primaries, uh, some tough, some not so tough, uh, in the years I've been in Congress. Uh, I go home to my district every, virtually every weekend. There may be one or two or three that, I, that we have something in Washington, but I try to go home every weekend. I try to run around to as many things there, there are in the district, and I've done that. A lot of people know me. They know that I care. I it's worth noting that we are recording here in the district today. Always, always. I have three district offices that uh, help uh, constituents with any personal problems or community concerns or anything they need. Um, I've tried to, to be available and, and uh, you know, around. So it's a free country. It's not my seat. i got to run for the seat. I accept that. I welcome it. So I have one last question for you. Um, for folks who are listening that want to get more involved with your uh, your government office or your campaign office? How can they find you? How can they learn more about you? Well, I have um, um, three district offices. So one of them is in Mount Vernon. You can just look me up in Mount Vernon. Um, one of them is in the Bronx, in the Riverdale, and one of them is in Co-op City. And so I'm in the, I'm in the phone book. Uh, you can Google me. Um, you can get, get hold of me many, many different ways. You can tell Siri to get me, to get me too. Um, I think that an important part of being an elected official is being accessible and letting your constituents know that if they have a personal problem or a community concern, they can come to you for help. Um, I've used the slogan, um, no uh, problem is too big or too small for me. If you have a problem and you need my help, I'm, I'm there for you. And that, I've always done that. And it's always worked for me, and I think the people of my district know that. They know I'm accessible. They know that my votes reflect what they want. And um, I'm raring to go. I'm always raring to go. This is the best job in the world. I'm grateful to have it. Um, I'm honored to have it. And now that I'm the, the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, it's even better. So I, you know, I don't think that people in the, in the district are going to want to get rid of the chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, who actually has some, some clout and it can help the district for somebody who, you know, may have just come by. Uh, but again, I, I fully accept whatever the voters want, and uh, um, I've tried to be as good a congressman as I can be, and I, I hope I have been. I think, I think I have been. Excellent. Congressman, thank you so thank much you for your so time. Much. This was a real pleasure. My pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Rate us five stars. That's how people find us. Be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash millenpolitics and follow us on social media at millenpolitics. Stay tuned for our next episode.